Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. Got another group of students here with me today. Talk about... Ticks. Ticks, motor ticks. So uh, let's start with introductions. So my name is Ray. I'm a medical student at RVU and I'm in my third year. I'm Brandon. Also, I'm a fourth year student at Rocky Vista. And I'm Natalie Pratt, another fourth year student at Rocky Vista. All right, so I think we've met you before, Natalie. Had you tell us a little bit more about you in the past. And Brandon, I think tomorrow or the next day we'll learn more about you as well. Ray, tell me how you came up with this. Uh, first of all, tell me who you are. Well, that's kind of a broad question, right? <laughs> uh, let's see, I'm from Arizona. Uh, after college, I spent four years as an EMT before I decided to apply to medical school. And three years later, I'm here now with Dr. Roundy. So um, most of the time I ask students the direction they're headed. Ah, okay. Um, what is it that uh, you were hoping to do with medicine when you first started? Um, when I first started, I was thinking family med, but I worked two years in a trauma one center, and so for the emergency department, and I just fell in love with it because it's fast paced, you do a, little, a lot of cool things, and you know, all the doctors and residents there, because it was a teaching hospital, they helped me to get into medical school and helped me throughout medical school as well. They would always come in and do talks for my club and stuff like that. That is really, really cool. Yeah. So, emergency medicine. Emergency medicine. Very, very cool. You'll see some psychiatry there. Oh, absolutely. That's why I'm trying to get as, as much as I can from this rotation. Now, interestingly enough, I don't know that you'll see anybody that has an acute tick crisis, um. but uh, you are still interested in this topic. Oh, yeah. It's... Would you mind explaining kind of how that became interesting to you? So I have a lot of history with uh, motor ticks and chronic ticks, especially started, um, I think, my second semester of my first year of college. But what really made me start thinking about it was during our second year of medical school, we had our psychiatry class. And at least for me and a lot of other friends, we just started self-diagnosing each other. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, I got a little bit of narcissism, maybe histrionic. I'm not dressing too provocatively, but... And then it's, you, you know, you, <laughs> sometimes you got to be the center of attention. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And so you just kind of, every day it was, a, it was a new diagnosis, like, oh yeah, this happened to me, oh, I feel this way, oh, that's weird. And then, you know, we come on to motor tics, because when it happened to me in college, I just, you know, I know the word tick, but I just assumed it was a personality trait as part of who I am. But, you know, knowing now it's that, it's, it is a medical condition, it's a psychiatric disorder. And, you know, there's treatments, there's things to talk about, you know, to help with it, but, you know, I never went out looking for help because I thought that's just me I got to take care of it myself and so uh, let's see second semester of college you know I just started getting this urge in my eyes that you know it was really dry and so then I would start shedding it as tight as I could and I would count to ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. and then that was getting too long so then I shortened it down to three so one two three but then this would be happening in class and I was like get a little embarrassed, like, can people hear me? And so like, one, two, three, and like, be shutting my eyes. And you just get this urge, you can't control it. It just happens, and for some reason, when I counted to three, it kind of made the feeling go away. And, um, you know, like, this would happen in movie theaters, and kind of be weird, like, friends want to go to movies, and it's like, ah, I don't know if I can do that, because, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, I just, I don't feel it's too good today. And you'd hear me counting one, two, three, and then, you know, somehow, I just 
got rid of it, I would just kind of tell myself, like, okay, no, you're not doing it today, and stuff like that. And then there would be other manifestations, like uh, the snorting. So, with me, like, you would hear me a lot go, like, just snorting my um, breath, like, <sighs> every day, chronically, every, like, three to five seconds. And again, you know, that gets loud, that gets annoying, I understand people. And, you know, sometimes people would point it out to me, friends and stuff, and, you know, you get so embarrassed, it kind of shakes your confidence, like, I, I don't know what's wrong with me, you know, something's telling me I have to do this, you know, I'm there with you that this can get annoying, but I, I don't know what to do about it. And I think for the majority, these kind of went away second year of medical school I just I don't know what happened it just there was a change maybe yeah I actually don't have any explanations but I just noticed myself now like I'll do it a couple times here on the rotations and you'll hear me but it was never as bad as before I'd like to pride myself on being able to pick up motor tics. Mm -hmm. I never noticed your tics. Yeah, that one's yeah it's not so much anymore but yeah most of the time it's just an urge like <sighs> Maybe it's not even like a runny nose or anything like that. It's just that they call it the premonitionary. What is it? The premonition, premonitionary, the urge, urge. Pre was it a pre premonitionary? Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's probably how you say it. We'll have to maybe put the link to the Google word <laughs> so that we can anybody that wants to can click it and yeah. hear hear Google say it. Um, so you're saying a couple of things that are really important. Let me. Let me back up just a second. Um, Natalie and Brandon, the two of you have taken your shelf exam. You've gone through all of the UWorld questions, which is a question bank. You have some sort of sense about the general trend of, of what things are important for medical students to know about motor tics. Uh, let's start with uh, Brandon uh, and then go to Natalie. Brandon, what would you say students that are getting ready for the shelf exam and their board exams, um, what kinds of things do they need to be thinking of? The, this topic just seems very low yield, <laughs> is what I was <laughs> thinking while you were asking me that question. Um, nothing comes to mind because, I don't know, so many other topics are more important, I guess. So for, for the, not for, I mean, it's very important for real life. But you got to differentiate real life from testing the test life. exam. So, no. test exam, low yield, probably. And yeah. I'll put that in the disclaimer for this podcast. Natalie, what about you? Anything that strikes you that might have come across that's important to know? Um, for ticks alone, no. But Tourette's comes up maybe once or twice. Still low yield, but definitely know the treatment for that. So we'll talk about that just a little bit then. Now, that gets me to diagnosis then. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, ticks, there's a little bit of a difference in the way that that's defined, right? I don't know if you looked at the DSM-5 versus the black article, which I really, really liked. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we'll try and link that black article, at least the, the link through PubMed into the podcast. But sudden, rapid, Oh, recurrent, yeah. non-rhythmic is the DSM description. But then if you look at like the black article, it adds a couple of things that feel more like how I experience ticks. I think you've noticed I also experience motor ticks, um, where they talk about intent and uh, purposeless, right? There's no purpose to the ticks. You made it very clear. Um, and, and I think they also focused more on the, the 
premonitionary urge, right? So, so when I experience a tick, I, I feel that premonitionary urge, just like this intense need to wiggle my ears. And I know it will hurt when I do it, but it feels like I just have to do, have to do it, right? And, and there's no purpose to wiggling my ears. It doesn't matter that I lift up my eyebrows. It doesn't matter if I move my scalp back and forth. Yet I feel that intense need, right? It's purposeless. It happens kind of out of the blue. If you're watching and paying attention, you'll see it happen. And, and that's a tick, right? But then a tick isn't a diagnosis. There are three types of diagnoses that are made based on those ticks, right? Right. And the first one is? Uh, so it used to be called transitional tick, but now I think with the DSM-5, it's called provisional tick now. Yes, very good. And that's anything less than a year. Correct. And then if it's more than a year, it is? A chronic tick. Or I think the DSM-5 has chronic in parentheses and they call it persistent motor mm. or persistent vocal tick. And um, you can have one or, or the, the other, other, but you yep. can't have both, right? Correct. And then if you have both, then it becomes? Tourette's. Tourette's, which um, you spoke to a few minutes ago. Now Tourette's seems to be a little bit, um, uh, for some reason it seems to be more disruptive, although I would say that vocal tics are the ones that are most disruptive, right? The DSM talks about these being hierarchical, meaning that the provisional tics are... Goes up to chronic. Goes up. Or to Tourette's. To Tourette's, yeah, right. So the three steps, right? Provisional to persistent to Tourette's. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's a lot of comorbidity with these. Yeah, but I think the main one is with the ADHD, with... Um, Let's see, Tourette's or chronic motor tick, about 60% of people end up developing ADHD. Yeah. A lot of OCD also. In fact, when you were saying I had to count to 10, mm. I was like, hmm, do I ask? Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't have that, like, fear or thought pattern that I think people would kind of confuse with OCD. Right. So um, important things to point out. Now, the other thing that I thought was interesting, if you look at the DSM-4, is they talk about a number of kinds of ticks that they are. And if it's a, like a coprolalia where you... Um, bad words. Bad words, it's verbal. But you can also have copropraxia where you're like obscene gestures at mm. people, right? And there are all sorts of lalias and praxias that you can have that, uh, that are part of these motor ticks. So, so I'm guessing that depending on the kind of tick you have, it can be more disruptive, more, yeah. more embarrassing. I, I want to go back to what you said, though. You said, hey, um, it, wasn't, I, it kept me from doing things I liked. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe I've just been socially clued out enough that it doesn't keep me from going to do stuff. Or, or you know, maybe I was used to it because half my family has motor ticks. Uh, whatever the case is, you also gave me an article about um, quality of life, yeah. uh, an article out of Turkey, I believe. Yep, Turkey. Tell me a little bit about that. So generally amongst children with chronic or persistent tics or Tourette's, um, they find that their quality, or they feel that their quality of life is a little bit lower than somebody without tics. Seems pretty straightforward. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, that, that summed it up, but I don't know that it... <laughs> I don't know that that said it any better than how you described it, right? I, I don't want to go to my movies. Hey, I just don't feel well today. Yeah, you keep really? excuses. You look like you're ready to go ride a bicycle. You're in your <laughs> bicycling shorts. What do, you, what do you mean, right? They knew you were lying. They didn't know why. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, there are a number of things that make ticks worse, things that make ticks better. 
So I guess with worse, maybe um, anxiety, fear, um, I think stimulants can do it too, excitement, and maybe if you're just too tired too, they can go. Yeah, those are exactly the ones that the DSM-5 listed. They also mentioned that if you can imagine somebody that has uh, copropraxia and maybe is walking down the street ticking mm. and seems unusual, the police stop to talk to that person. The stress of having the police stop and talk to you now causes the copropraxia to be much worse or the coprolalia, if you have Tourette's, uh, would have both potentially. And suddenly you're now in a lot more trouble with the police. So, so these can not only disrupt the quality of life, but they can place you in some situations that are, are very difficult. I recall uh, a person in a class I had who had a verbal tick. They would do something along the lines of, Whee! And uh, it would just come out of nowhere. And, and the, first, um, the first couple of weeks of the semester, uh, you know, we all kind of just went, well, what is that? And then I had the guy sitting next to me go, it's Tourette's. You know, and I was like, oh, well, that makes a whole lot of sense. And, and yet still somewhere in the middle of the semester, the, the professor stopped, right, rather than just kind of ignore it and roll on, stopped and said, excuse me? And that moment never went away, right? I can imagine that the, the student was either hopefully used to having ticks by that point or was so mortified they never came back and I wasn't sure which, right? I wasn't, it was this auditorium of, of 400 people. So, so very difficult. Um, so treatment. Yeah, so I think the first line for treatment for a persistent motor tick or Tourette's is generally talking about it. So um, you can do habit reversal therapy, which kind of goes into it. When you feel the urge, you can try to substitute it for another action that maybe not um, be as disruptive or as loud or, you know, just trying to do with something that, you know, can be accommodated around other people as well. And then... Um, just so that's the behavioral therapy. Behavioral therapy. Okay. And then you move into medications? Yeah, pharmacology if it's severe enough. But before we go to that, okay. they talked about another one where you're talking to the patient, talking to the family, and talking to the school. And just explaining to other students, other people, that it's not going to benefit anybody if you just point it out. Like, hey, man, what's going on with the snorting? What's going on with the counting? Because more than likely, you're just going to hurt them emotionally. And then, like, I know with myself, when someone brought it up, I'd try my hardest for the next five minutes just to stop anything at all. But did it ever really stop? No. The stress made it worse. Yeah. Because he's yeah. like, uh, everybody's around me, and you just kind of like, don't want to talk to anybody right now, but, you know, you're at work and stuff like that. And, you know, it kind of sucks when somebody points it out, but it's understandable. Yeah, it's different. It stands out. Yeah. yeah. So then if we go to pharmacology, I think it was a little different because when I started uh, studying for my step two, um, I always had the belief to treat Tourette's and tics was uh, guanfacine and clonidine. But according to some of the sources I've studied, now the first line is an anti-dopaminergic agent or like one of the antipsychotics. A lot of... A lot of discussion about that, right? Yeah. I, I think the uh, the article that you sent me, the fourth article that talked about treatment, listed uh, a number of medications. They listed the alpha-2 antagonist as a first-line treatment, I thought. And then they also mentioned that there was randomized control data regarding the use of some antipsychotic medications, showing that they were effective, but not all antipsychotic medications. 
Right, so I think some of the uh, good ones to do for chronic tics are risperidone and do you read tetrabenazine? So tetrabenazine, not a not an antipsychotic medication, but yeah, I noticed that they use that as well. That's the uh, VMAT2 inhibitor. Oh, okay. That, that we also use for another movement disorder. I'm going to put uh, Brandon and Natalie on the spot here. Uh, the VMAT2 inhibitors, do you remember which movement disorder they are used for here at the state hospital? No. <laughs> oh, sorry guys, I wouldn't have thrown it to you if I thought you didn't know it. Uh, tardive dyskinesia. Oh, right. Right, so uh, the VMAT2 inhibitors are used for tardive dyskinesia, and I think we've read about Val case, repo re case reports of, of that used in patients. Don't we call it Val tetrabenazine, though? Uh, or the so, so actually, tetrabenazine is Val, and then do tetrabenazine is uh, the modification of it. Uh, mm -hmm. Tetrabenazine was used for tardive dyskinesia as an orphan drug, uh, and then they developed two molecules. One is deuterated uh, tetrabenazine, so do tetrabenazine, and then valbenazine is, uh, is one of the other molecules that's been modified slightly to extend life, uh, half-life. Mm -hmm. So there's two medications for, for uh, motor, I'm sorry, not for motor tics, but for uh, tardive dyskinesia. And my guess is they're probably used off-label mm -hmm. and without a lot of controlled trials in, in motor tics. I, I just don't know the answer to that. And so to going back on what the article says that the guanfazine and clonidine were first lines, um, I read that too and there's a lot of side effects with the antipsychotics, but um, using one of the Q-banks, they made it very clear that um, the anti-dopaminergic agents were first line in okay. most of the data. So, so I'm sure it's trying to go for uh, more board prep for these people listening. Yeah, so, so we want the board prep. I, I think important to point out that um, I doubt the board prep would do this, but you could have a stem that said not tolerating the antipsychotics because of weight gain or metabolic issues. Then what would happen? And it would be, mm. so the, the uh, alpha twos would be the next choice, I think. Because they were just saying that patients had it for a year, it's not uh, getting better, and they were already on guanfacine. Oh, so in that case, it would be so if they were already on guanfacine and not getting better, then the obvious choice would be the the antipsychotic medication. But then in the explanation, it says antipsychotics are first line. Are first line. Interesting. First, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I believe that, it, but you know, there's. I would have to defer to somebody who yeah. is. I, I so so. There's been an interesting evolution over the time that I've been in psychiatry. When I started, they were clearly first line. Mm -hmm. And, and yet, we worried so much about things like tardive dyskinesia with uh, Haldol and uh, Pimazide, some of the older antipsychotics. And, and yet, uh, there was clear benefit from Risperidone, which was just coming out as I was a new psychiatrist, a new student. And then they started worrying about the metabolic side effects of Risperidone, so prolactin, uh, pro high prolactin levels in, in gynecomastia. Uh, changes in sex drive, um, all sorts of problems with risperidone, and we see that quite a bit with uh, with young young boys who are more likely to have Tourette's and and tardive and I'm sorry and tic disorders. So so there was during part of my training there was a trend away from that. It mm. looks like that trend is maybe that pendulum is swinging back. It sounds like quite possibly. Okay, good to know. Go ahead though. So we talked about the two main pharmacologies, but then. Dr. Roundy brought up one of his previous experiences with a very severe case that in, uh, since pharmacology didn't work, they used a deep brain stimulator. And so, you know, there's some controversy right now in which spot or which area of the brain they is the most or is the best to target. 
But reading about the globus internus, which um, if you know about it from your neurology course, it has an effect on the thalamus, which will indicate uh, like action movement, motor movement. And if you remember like the D1 direct pathway, um, you know, dopamine will go in to the striatum, activate the internus, and then turn on the thalamus, which causes movement. And so going back to the antidopaminergic agents, this would kind of help that with the ticks by um, inhibiting the dopamine and inhibiting the activation of the thalamus and motor action. By the way, I just want to point out, Ray did that from memory. <laughs> That's pretty. I've been preparing for this. Like, okay, I don't want to sound like a fool right now. No, no, you sound you sound wonderful. So, so deep brain stimulation, I think, um, is a is a last treatment in most cases because of how invasive it is. Yeah, there's some complications like you can get a hematoma, psychosis, and just other complications with with doing surgery. And, and yet, it looks like when it works, it's pretty miraculous, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Let's see, Botox. I was deployed to Iraq, and as you can imagine, being in Iraq is uh, can be stressful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the going, the getting there, leaving your family, all of those things. And, and so I had a period of time when my motor tics were somewhat more difficult. I can actually trigger tension headaches or maybe even migraines mm-hmm. because of the, so, so motor tics will, will sometimes have rubbing of, of muscles or fascial planes against each other. And so I get quite a bit of pain sometimes in this part of my uh, my head, and um, I was talking to one of the surgeons. There are surgeons there; they don't have as much to do when Iraq is quiet, uh, other than hang out in the gym. And he said, "You know, I can I can take care of that. I can make your forehead look smoother than a baby's bottom and get rid of those ticks at the same time." And uh, I, I've often wondered if it would be nice to go have Botox simply to have some relief from the the myofascial pain. Because it, it isn't. It, ticks hurt. I don't know if you had ticks that hurt after a while. Mm, sometimes when I was counting, I would actually yell it out and, you know, your voice hurts and stuff after a while of doing it every day. Yeah. yeah. It, it, they, they don't feel good. In addition to they don't look good. Mm. Um, let's see. So we talked about uh, a lot of different things. Clonazepam also used. Seems to have some benefit. And it seems that clonazepam is different than the other um, the other benzodiazepines. I remember looking at this distantly, and it seems that there's something unique about the way clonazepam works on uh, skeletal muscle, and why that is, I don't know. So mm-hmm. if you ever run across that, or if anybody finds an answer to that, let me know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of um, treatments, because I know I was reading that even a dopamine agonist can be used to treat ticks, which would be contraindicated. Yeah. Why? Yeah, who knows, right? Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one other thing you mentioned when you first brought up this topic. You said something along the lines of um, you thought that maybe Asian populations were more affected by ticks than other populations. Did you find anything that bore that out? Mm, No, I haven't done much research on that because I wanted to get the actual diagnosis because Looking into different cultures, I can kind of maybe get a little tricky with the research. I think the research is, so, so the, one of the first things I did when I prepared for this was to look at the information about uh, tick disorders in the DSM. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, they say race doesn't have any effect on the prevalence of ticks. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the community around the people that have ticks is affected by how that community views ticks seems to matter. Mm. But it didn't say much more. The, the other thing I noticed, though, is as I read the DSM, I thought that it, it was um, that it the data it said was fact was somewhat different than the black article. I don't know if you read the DSM and compared that to the art the black article that you sent me. So the DSM says, hey, a lot of ticks show up. We don't know how common they are, but they go away. What did the black article say? That with patients that had a tick for a mean average of three years, they ninety percent of them had it at the twelve year or twelve month twelve month anniversary. Yeah. So so that was surprising to me. So they said, hey, we're still not entirely sure how prevalent ticks are. There's some evidence that it's much more than we say, mm -hmm. right? If you go in a classroom with trained observers and watch kids who are working, um, it's like seventeen percent that they had it, and then like one to two percent uh, became persistent. Yeah, but that doesn't seem to fit with the article, the data from the the black article. So the black article said, hey, we're tracking um, kids who show up with ticks for ten years. Mm -hmm. This is this is what our project's going to be. We're three years in now, but we got to tell you this belief that kids who have ticks and they go away, just not right. They get less um, significant. Right. They ebb and flow, but they don't seem to disappear. Is that the way you read the article? Yeah, I think I read it the same way. All right, so if somebody shows up with ticks, there there was a way of saying how severe they might be, right? Um, I think they're, they were looking to brain scans. Is that where you're leading to? I wasn't leading to the brain scans because I felt like that's still pretty early. They had a really tough time scanning, functionally scanning five-year-olds. Imagine mm. that. <laughs> Apparently, five-year-old kids don't hold still for functional imaging. <laughs> so, um, Are you talking about the suppression then? Yeah, they do this rewarded suppression. So I, I don't, in my mind, I imagine they say, hey, listen, if you can keep that tick from happening, I'll give you a candy bar. Whether that's the model or not, <laughs> I, I don't know, but I wouldn't mind getting a candy bar for suppressing my ticks. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be so good, yeah. Um, but, but kids who couldn't suppress the ticks for the reward had a higher um, severity later on. Right. And the other thing that seemed to correspond was the premonitionary urge. I always assumed that that was part of everybody's motor tics, but it doesn't look like it is. Right. Um, it's part of mine. It sounds like it's part of yours, mm -hmm. but it's not part of everybody's motor tics. And apparently there may be some correlation between that premonitionary urge and the severity of the motor tics. Um, but not not clear yet, right? No, I think there still needs to be more research done. Um, so ticks don't go away, but for the board exam, for the shelf exam, <laughs> you reassure your patient, tell them that they'll go away. Is that is that the answer? Um, I think the behavioral therapy is the first line, but then if it's severe enough, and I guess that kind of leads it, if for you to determine if it's severe enough go the pharmacological route and then it kind of there's a controversy controversy there since you know clinical medicine would probably tell us the guanfacine and clonidine are the better first line but according to the boards it's a dopin anti-dopaminergic agent is the best yeah i'm not sure i read that there were randomized control trials for the alpha 2 molecules so maybe that's the distinction on the antipsychotics yeah. The thing was saying that there wasn't a lot of research backing the alpha two agonists, the alpha twos. and and 
there is a lot of benefit for the antipsychotics, but it comes with more liability. It yeah, like you can get like the extra parental symptoms or metabolic diseases. Yeah. All right, so last thing maybe worth pointing out. There are a couple of movement disorders that might be hard to tease out for motor tics. Let's see if we can name them. I've got them written down. We'll see what you guys come up with as a list. So I put that. You can probably get it confused with like Huntington's Korea, which has a mm -hmm. tremor and some er erratic movements. Mm -hmm. uh, Korea is one of them. Uh, tardive dyskinesia is what I've read as well. That's certainly one of them as well. And then I put a partial seizure because sometimes they'll be aware, but they can have just a spasm of the arm. Interesting. And I didn't have that one written down. The DSM didn't list that, but I can see where you're going with that. I like that. And then you guys? So we can do... So I was going to um, say that OCD... Yeah, I was going to say that. I didn't want to give the big one first. <laughs> um, so OCD, not as much in the movements. I suppose you could have a, a compulsion to move, yeah. um, but, but probably more... Uh, well, that would be it, right? The compulsion to move. It feels right to move. You feel compelled to move. Uh, myoclonus, hemiblismus. Mm. Um, yeah, the hemiblismus where it just kind of swings up. Yeah. Uh, and something called motor stereotypies. Did you read about that? I didn't. So I, that's something I've got to look at more, and I, th I think that's like the flapping you might see with... Uh, autism spectrum disorders, things along those lines. Hmm. I don't, I haven't noticed any flapping. Maybe like Rett's syndrome, I know there's like the writhing of the hands, yeah. So those are also, um, if you look at the DSM-4, those are specifically talked about those develop, the developmental, um, they, they have to show up during early development and they seem to be associated with the clearly defined genetic diseases, so that's a great one, yeah. There was one other one that I think they mentioned with Rett's Guys, on that note, I think we've covered the things that are important in the treatment, the diagnosis and treatment of, of uh, tick disorders. And I think this was uh, actually pretty interesting and sounds like lower yield for the shelf exam and yet uh, I think pretty meaningful for at least two of us. Yeah. This was something... Yeah, just to talk well, about it. Well, meaningful for any physician as well. It's, I mean, even if it's not on the exams, you still got to know about it. <laughs> you know, you'll see it. No I guess so. You'll see about it, but I, I think it's the first time I've ever thought about. Gosh, I know I have this, but you know, it's like that black box you don't want to. You open. know, Pandora's box. Like, oh, there is like something wrong with me. At least everything else. You have a mental illness. <laughs> I do. That's fine. So do I. Yeah. Right. It's that motor tics. Um, great job. Thanks for joining us today, uh, Ray. Very, very well done on this. Thank you. And. Uh, we ready to exit, so let's exit. Team out. Team yeah. out. <laughs>